Welcome to Women on the Line, Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on Wurundjeri Country of the Kulin Nations and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Nicole Kirby. I'm not feminist, but... I'm not feminist, but... I'm not feminist, but... I'm not feminist, but... On this week's show, we hear some sounds of feminism. In Melbourne, the experimental sound festival Liquid Architecture is stepping out of their usual domain. They're putting on a series of events that brings women to the forefront in the world of sound and experimental music, a world that's usually dominated by men. The series of events is called What Would a Feminist Methodology Sound Like? And 31 female-identifying artists are performing over four weeks. This week on the show, I speak with Denny Zuvella, one of the artistic directors of Liquid Architecture, and she tells us how the program was born. We also hear from some of the amazing women performers on the program. Celeste Little, who blogs as Rantings of a Black Feminist, shares her very on-point perspective on feminism and intersectionality. Later we'll hear from Evelyn Ida Morris with a very personal and moving spoken word. We'll also hear parts of a performance from Makiko Yamamoto called I Am Not a Feminist, But. First, here's Denny Zuvella, Artistic Director of Liquid Architecture and Curator of What Would a Feminist Methodology Sound Like. That's where the idea of Where Would a Feminist Methodology Sound Like came from, the idea of a program where we could launch a bit of an investigation over the course of four weeks to create a space where we could hear lots of different women's voices um, and maybe bring that conversation into sound art a little more. And I mean, one thing with feminism, I think it's a thing that's really easy to talk about, but actually to enact it in pragmatic (laughs) ways in your day-to-day life is something that requires a bit more of a conscious effort. Mm. And when it comes to that as well, you know, the intersectionality that is bound up with feminism Mm. in terms of acknowledging women of colour as well and, you know, women of uh, different abilities and diverse backgrounds. And that's something that I know the program has been quite strong on. You started with three really strong voices of Aboriginal women. Tell me about that. It was really an opportunity, like you say, to put our, the thinking into practice, you know, and as you say, to not just talk about feminism, but to actually do it. Uh, so one of those ways wasn't just in making an all women program. And it is all women, even down to our documentation staff are women identifying. Um, and, uh, but it's also about doing the feminism in lots of other ways. So we started with the Welcome to Country from Annie Dyker and then our opening speaker uh, and a, is a, this really inspiring and amazing feminist, Celeste Little, who blogs as Rantings of an Aboriginal Feminist, or you can find her on Facebook as uh, Black Feminist Ranter. And she gave a really great, really impassioned talk that helped to place the experience of being a black feminist within white feminism. And it was funny and it was candid and it was also full of rage and it was also uncompromising. And I think it was absolutely the ideal way for us to start. She's a proud Aranda woman and she's got a really um, articulate and beautiful way of putting things. I think that that was a really important way of doing feminism 
Yeah, it reminds me of this quote uh, by Lilla Watson, who's a famous uh, Indigenous activist and visual artist and from my home state of Queensland. And the quote that's often attributed to Lilla Watson is, if you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come here because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. And on that note, let's hear a little bit from Celeste Little. People fight hard to be proud of their identities within the Indigenous community in in the face of colonisation. And while women battle that um, on the basis of gender, when you're doing it on the basis of race and gender, and the race-based battle is actually a first-person's battle, then it's a whole other ballgame. Everyone who is not Indigenous in this country is the beneficiary of the displacement of Indigenous people, including other people of colour. So the dialogues around multiculturalism also don't work. Indeed, as an Arundel woman living on, you know, the country of the Kulin Nations, I myself benefit from the displacement of the... Um, from this displacement of the peoples from here and this is despite the fact that I am the descendant of stolen generations before me, despite the struggle to retain my language and culture. So the concurrent battles for pride, for land, for womanhood are complicated and feminism does not always get this. It struck me a couple of months ago just how much Aboriginal women have lost and it was a simple event which triggered, the, sorry, which triggered this thought train. I spend a hell of a lot of time on social media and indeed owe a fair chunk of my career to it. And news came through that the trailer for the Aboriginal co- um, comedy series 8MMM had been censored by the people over in Facebook headquarters. Why? Because it featured footage of bare-breasted desert women painted up an undertaking ceremony. Now, we all know, according to Facebook, that breasts are incredibly offensive things that shouldn't be on there. But it, um, it wasn't that long ago that there were online campaigns to try and stop Facebook um, censoring pictures of breastfeeding women. Yet when I saw this, my response was along the lines of, gee, I wish white people would stop trying to put their body shaming issues onto Aboriginal women. I mean, think about it. These women were engaged in ceremony, which has been practised in some form or another for several millennia. And back in the day, it would have been performed with nothing but ochre and a hair belt round the waist. Bodies were merely seen as functional rather than offensive or shameful. The story of Barangaroo, the wife of Benelong, tells how she sat at a um, dinner table in Government House in Sydney wearing nothing but a bone through her nose because she expressed great discomfort at wearing clothing as if the act of wearing it was more shameful than, you know, than just being who she was. I'm not saying that there was no concept of body shaming um, pre-colonisation because considering the diversity and the sheer length of time we're dealing with, how could I possibly know that this is the case? I am saying, though, that peoples who thought nothing about going about their daily business unencumbered by layers of garments do not have the same concepts of shame attached to their bodies personally or attributed to their bodies by other people. I explained as much on my Facebook page while posting up the video that, which had been censored elsewhere. I additionally explained how body shame was something strongly drummed into um, the Aboriginal communities by things like the missions and um, the people of, of religion who ran them. We still see those ripples now on many traditionally based remote communities and it is expected that people will dress conservatively when being there. 
um, people really took on board, so people on my page rather, really took on board the layers of colonisation and gendered shame and embraced these sorts of ideas and engaged in some real discussion. And then I got trolled. So the video was reported several times and my page was suspended over and over again, all because some scared little men and possibly some women could not handle not only the, not only the natural body and its painted glory, but also the fact that despite the many, the many attempts by colonisation to try and wipe out such practices, Aboriginal women were still practising culture openly and unquestionably and on national television for all to see. The sheer defiance, though it was possibly not even intended by these desert women, scared the absolute crap out of these types and they couldn't take it. One question I ask from this is, will feminists also choose to be afraid of, um, of the defiance of people still practising culture? I mean, yes, some cultural practices need to be examined across the world, but there is still a tendency for feminists to examine them from the outside looking in thus reinforcing that racial power rather than allowing those, um, the women from those cultures to dissent and ensure these women are listened to. So which way will you go? One thing I hear a hell of a lot about in feminist, circum sorry, feminist circles now is the concept of intersectionality. I've been frequently labelled an intersectional feminist and for the longest time I had no idea why. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how to be a politically engaged individual without being intersectional. As long as I have been Aboriginal, I have also been labelled as female and I've continually felt the oppressions of both at the same time. I additionally come from a working class background and what with a mother from the inner north of Melbourne and an Arunda father from Alice Springs. So the struggles of class have always been a part of my political understanding as well. I therefore find it pretty impossible to separate these struggles, even though I'm now a university-educated, professionally employed individual. And my feminist politics will always be, um, be along, located alongside a race and class understanding. I therefore interpret the idea of intersectionality as an incredibly radical one, as in it's about liberating those who are the most oppressed by the intersecting um, systems of oppression. So everyone else who is higher up on the social strata ends up benefiting. Yet often I hear intersectionality seems to lend itself to a form of identity politics which in turns to, sorry, which tends to um, lead to what I have heard termed the oppression Olympics. It's a cruel and crude term, but essentially it means that there are arguments on which form of oppression is worse than others, with some individuals identifying themselves down the social strata and in the age of hipster Melbourne, sometimes ironically for status. I'm not always sure how to reconcile this idea. I mean, I feel everyone has benefited from the dispossession of Aboriginal um, people on this country. And I feel that people have benefited from the essential enslavement of other people based on gender. I feel the labour of people is continually exploited for the benefit of others. I think the answer lies in dialogue and being circumspect about one's privilege and how it can be used for the betterment of others. 
I have privilege because unlike many other Aboriginal women, I am university educated and I have a platform which many of them don't have access to. So I have, an, I have a responsibility to them not only to offer that platform for their stories but also to work with integrity. I have privilege because I live in an area where I have many services at my fingertips which a lot of other women um, continually have to beg for and indeed are only given um, as some kind of sick reward from the government if they are compliant, compliant to the government's wishes. I also feel as a result of the continuous curbing of Indigenous women's voices by the, by the feminist movement, by the media, by the government, by men, that I have a responsibility to occupy the platform that I have, not just to assist... Um, in providing a voice to those who do not have access to these sorts of um, spaces, but also to, also so those people who disagree with me um, have the opportunity to dissent and therefore um, expose the rest of the country to our debates. We're continually silenced and homogenised. Um, I feel the rest of the country would stand to benefit from hearing our discussions. I therefore strongly believe that intersectionality is the politics of discussion by those who have continuously been silenced above anything else um, which it is interpreted to be. And this discussion involves listening as much as it involves talking. I won't talk for what I'm not, but I will listen and I will learn and I will attempt to carve out spaces for their discussion and their dissent. And this is what I feel with the feminist movement too. The feminist movement is nothing if not diverse, from the radicals through to the liberals to the womanists to the indigenous and beyond. And the one thing that feminists have in common is that they are aware of gendered power and how it is wielded and they wish to overthrow it for the sake of a more equal world. So we cannot replicate the exact same power dynamics which exist in a masculinised world. We cannot reinforce the same power stratifications if we wish to be successful. We have to demolish the issues um, associated with classism, with racism and with other forms of oppression because these are the tools that are used to keep us separate and it is for the benefit of the oppressing groups that we remain separated. To quote one of my favourite lines from um, Audre Lorde, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. I'm not saying it's the sole responsibility of the feminist movement to do this, for I know that a fact that the other movements I'm a part of could stand from having a more intersectional fo focus as well. But imagine the power of all those people talking, listening, and then mobilising with the goal of creating a more equal world against those currently at, top, at the top. It would be unbeatable. The mainstream feminist movement needs to better embrace um, the struggles of those who are more, oh, sorry, more oppressed and ensure that there's always space for those people to have a voice. It needs to become aware of the power of discussion and collaboration and engage less in lateral violence because at the end of the day what scares the hell out of the patriarchy the most is that we may start to dominate the dialogue after years of trying to keep us in the background. The, this, sorry, the reinforcement of the exact systems of oppression um, that, sorry, the exact systems which oppress others will ensure feminism is never successful. So we need to look beyond this, collaborate and keep our minds focused and open. Our time is now. That was Celeste Little. 
On Community Radio Around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. I'm Nicole Kirby, and I spoke with Artistic Director of Liquid Architecture, Danny Zuvella, about the series of events that you're hearing from, called What Would a Feminist Methodology Sound Like? You mentioned that everyone involved in this program, What Does a Feminist Methodology Sound Like, are women at all levels. And I know that in a world that's dominated by men, which is the tech side of sound, (laughs) you've also got a sound system there that's designed and made by a woman and a woman who's involved in the events there. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, And I'm so glad you mentioned that because tech and gear and sound uh, stuff in particular is heavily duty. It's really... It's it's very much a dude thing. And that's not to say that women aren't into it. I'm into it. Uh, and as are lots of women, and that is what Lulu has shown. So Lulu Quintanier is a woman from a Caribbean origin, and she really comes from that Caribbean sound system culture, which um, just briefly is where you have people custom building sound systems and then often bringing them to some kind of public space where they might have some, you know, they'll they'll have a party and maybe some kind of contest and you have a sort of whole uh, cultural dynamic that's built around um, partying with these um, home-built sound systems Uh, and they whack an incredible punch, like they're really, really powerful systems. And this one is built by Lulu Quintanier, as I said. She's sourced the materials, taught herself to solder on YouTube, YouTube, uh, and then built this amazing stack with these two beautiful big speakers and a sub on top. She's sourced materials from her community um, and from other people who support experimental and progressive music, uh, and she's able to install it for us in West Space, and it sounds amazing. <laughs> it sounds so good. <laughs> Women's on the line. <laughs> oh, Women on the line. Women on the line. <laughs> <laughs> Is it too crass to ask what a feminist methodology does sound like? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not crass. It's a really good question, but you should ask the artist, (laughs) not me, because I'm still learning what that might be. I guess really great artists take a, you know, a curatorial proposition like that and they use it to come up with even better questions. One of those creations is the 12-minute piece, I'm Not a Feminist But, performed by Makiko Yamamoto. Here's a taste of it. I'm not a feminist part. 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 I'm not I'm not a feminist part. 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 I'm not a feminist The sound world and the music world in a lot of ways is dominated by men who are headliners and front acts. Uh, And so I suppose that is also what makes a space like this really important. Uh, And so a really important woman to bring into the conversation at this point is the Sydney journalist Kate Hennessy, who's a co-founder of the Listen Collective, um, who are sort of promoting the roles of women in um, the Australian music industry. Uh, and Kate wrote an article earlier in the year called When Music Festival Stages Are Stacked in Favour of Men, It's Bad News for Everyone. Uh, and in this, she sort of mentioned, say, for instance, of Soundwave 73 Acts, 
just six were women. Um, of Unsound's 12 headliners, cancellations and replacements bumped up uh, an original lineup where there were no female headliners to a final tally of one. But these are kind of like, like I said, they're the more niche or sound art kind of, that's more the world, I guess, liquid architecture moves in. If you zoom out and look with a really big lens, there was an image of this floating around earlier in the year as well. What would music festival posters look like with all the women removed? And you see it, we were just looking at it before off air, you see these like big blank spaces with a few names in tiny type. <laughs> so Generally down the bottom of the poster as well. That's right. I mean, it's almost like the, the whole, the whole, all the real estate of the poster is, is this big kind of echoing void and it's just not reflective of women working in sound for beginning for a beginning it's also not reflective of what is happening in contemporary art where there's a lot more attention to trying to hear the voices of women of people of diverse experience people from different backgrounds people of color migrants um so what we've got is a sort of a disconnect between the kind of music world which has stayed for want of a better word phallocratic <laughs> and um, and these kind of the, the more progressive currents that you can find in contemporary art. And the issue with this is not that women aren't out there producing great music and producing great sound pieces. They're, they're there and they're there in numbers. It's, it's another set of issues, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it's almost certainly not a conscious conspiracy. It's something that's been internalised and conditioned and is unthinking. It's thoughtless. On the other hand, it's hard not to see how, oh, whoops, all this thoughtlessness just happens to perpetuate white male supremacy. It's not a conspiracy, but at the same time, it does serve a status quo that keeps women and women of colour and people from diverse backgrounds, it keeps them, if not totally silenced, then keeps their voices much quieter. So I guess one thing, anybody who might be in some kind of position of power, whether they're a curator or they're a director or they're uh, a programmer can do is say, what are the voices that aren't being heard and what opportunities could I give them? What kind of space could I help to make? Because until you make it your responsibility or your problem, then you're not doing anything. Mm. And I think one thing that's really interesting about this is it's creating spaces for women's voices to be heard and it's creating a platform there for women to fill that space in the way that they want but it's also giving women permission to speak not just about what we perceive people may want to hear or what's acceptable, but it's giving women the space to speak what is largely considered unspeakable as well. And I think that comes during some of the performances that have played already. Yeah, yeah. I'm really glad you brought that up because I guess from our perspective as a sound art organisation, every bit as important as the sounds that we do hear and we do enjoy are the ones we don't. But how do you sound them or even know them? You know, how do you know what you're not hearing? How do we know what's left unsaid or what's unsayable or or is is being silenced or, or ruffled or and posing it as a question, what what would it sound like or what might it sound like? That I think also has helped some people to yeah, like you say, get a certain kind of permission to 
produce works or to explore sounds or silences that might be way beyond what they would normally do if they were in a more rigid, like, you know, festival lineup or in the high stakes world of a six week installation or something like that. So I'm thinking of works, especially like Evelyn Ida Morris's Please Repeat. Evelyn's, of course, a really uh, successful and accomplished musician. She plays as Pikelet. Um, as a you know, she's she's played in numerous other bands as well. But she's she's a great percussionist. Um, she's got an amazing voice, and she could very easily just do a sort of bracket of of songs that deal with women, and that would have been fine. But she really reached into herself to come up with something really different, and I think really profound which was a poem or lyrics that she wrote um, about sexual violence. And as disturbing and even harrowing as it was, I think it was absolutely essential to have on the opening night, but also in terms of helping to extend that sense of permission to other women to use their experiences to make sonic works, but also just to give a voice or give some amplification to the types of thoughts and feelings that might otherwise be suppressed or be pushed over to the side. So we're going to hear a little bit from Evelyn Morris's piece, Please Repeat, and there is a trigger warning that comes with that piece because it deals with sexual assault and body image issues. These are my hated breasts sitting atop my tightened, pounding chest. It's full of angry requests that I'm too scared to mention. I've learned to hate with these breasts because I learned to hate them first when I learned as a girl that I must cover them from threats of violence. They hold the key to insatiable urges. Accept this life with all its curses. The only choice for you is to hide your threatened body. Better you don't get raped or maimed so that the behaviours can stay the same, then our questioning can stay in a place that's more familiar and safe. It was never my safety that mattered. It was the fact that the truth of this violence shatters, the way the world is structured and who in it we congratulate. It was my mum's and auntie's curse, issued by all the men that groped them, Insatiable urges, just keep quiet, stay nice and frightened. Their fear lives on in my shapes, lives in my breasts, my heart, my face, right next to all these angry questions that beat with menace. Don't let them hear them, be softer, sweeter. You're soft and tender like breasts, remember, you must live up to this, but don't show weakness, I mean, don't don't show strength, I mean... Don't, don't you weakness. Hey, so when you touch me, don't caress with any loving tenderness. Bite the breasts or press them flat. Go on, tear at them. They're made to last. Perhaps, perhaps if you don't mind, perhaps if you don't skin, mind, pull softness skin, out. Just, softness leave behind just leave behind my hardened chest and questions. Breathe the bloody mess we're left with. Discard the parts they called female on this body of hate, guts churning, face pale. It hates me back, it seems, so go ahead and take it. 
please excuse me, please relieve me of my duties. Just just take my body. You can use it. Then it's taken. Then you've won. Then I'm broken. Then the competition will be won before the legs are even opened. Tried just saying no. I tried just saying no. No wasn't listened to. No wasn't listened to. I couldn't keep saying no. I couldn't keep saying no. Threat of violence. 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 Covers my mind. Covers my mind. Forcing out these feeble. Forcing out those feeble. Quiet. No. 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 Then one much more feeble. Then one much more feeble, yes. Covers my mind like this shirt that covers my breast. That keeps sitting there atop my aching chest. That breathes in slowly, just trying to get some rest. That was Evelyn Morris with her stunning piece, Please Repeat. On today's show, you heard performances from Celeste Little and Makiko Yamamoto. Their performances were recorded at a recent Melbourne event, What Would a Feminist Methodology Sound Like?, which is part of the Liquid Architecture Sound Festival. You can go to their website to hear the performances in their entirety, liquidarchitecture.org.au, and they're also up on SoundCloud. Today I've been speaking with the Artistic Director of Liquid Architecture and Curator of What Would a Feminist Methodology Sound Like?, Danny Zivella. There are more of those events throughout September, so check out their website and their Facebook page for details. And that's all for Women on the Line today. Thanks for joining us. Women on the Line is Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womenonthelion at hotmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 Women on the Lion programs can be downloaded from the website www.3cr.org.au slash womenonthelion. The theme music for Women on the Lion is Slideshow at Free University by Latigra. You've also heard the track Pillow Castle by Pikelet on this show. I'm Nicole Kirby. Hope you can tune in again next time. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.